Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My guest for this episode is David A. Harrisville, and we will be discussing his book, The Virtuous Wehrmacht, Crafting the Myth of the German Soldier on the Eastern Front, 1941 to 1942. Uh, David A. Harrisville, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, so we like to begin with, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get on involved into this project? Sounds good. Um, so my interest in history really goes back as far as I can remember. Uh, when I was a little kid, I played with a uh, little army men and made model airplanes and things like that, you know, probably like a lot of other of you. But um, as I got older, my interest in history uh, and the Second World War got a lot more serious, um, started reading, you know, people like Stephen Ambrose and uh, some of those histories. And uh, eventually uh, majored in history at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Um, and it was around that time I decided I wanted to teach history. Um, and so I decided to apply to graduate school and ended up going to uh, the University of Wisconsin Madison for my PhD. Um, but I kind of switched from being interested in the good guys to being interested in the bad guys uh, at some point. And so when I was at Madison, I wrote my uh, master's thesis about chaplains in the German army, because um, I was fascinated by the idea that Adolf Hitler would have chaplains, uh, which seems like an impossible thing. Um, and then for this project, which kind of came out of my dissertation project, um, I was originally going to study religion in the German army, but I went into the archives and um, I started noticing kind of my interests were bigger than just religion. Um, and I saw a lot of documents about how the Germans thought they were the good guys. And this was a righteous cause that they were fighting on the Eastern Front. And that really kind of piqued my interest into moral history. Um, so I decided to write a kind of moral history of the war on the Eastern Front and how the bad guys convinced themselves that they were the good guys. Now, uh, what kind of primary sources did you have to consult to write this uh, book? Um, yeah, so primarily I used letters uh, written by German soldiers. I had about 30 soldiers that I picked out uh, from one particular archive in Berlin uh, who wrote over 2,000 letters during the war. Um, and I think letters are a really useful tool for understanding kind of what people were thinking about themselves during the war at the time, and then um, also how they presented themselves to their audience, essentially, like their families and the homeland. Um, so letters were a big source. Uh, another source to kind of supplement that were uh, documents from the military hierarchy, um, so things like intelligence reports, orders, uh, reports by chaplains, propaganda materials, uh, kind of a lot of the sources that surrounded the soldiers. So I use those to give context to the letters. Um, and then finally, I used some sources from the German home front, um, things like uh, documents from the Nazi regime or uh, German newspapers or churches in Germany. Um, so I had kind of these three groups of sources. 
And a lot of times in military history, you kind of pick one of those, like either you study the, you know, the guys or the generals or the home front. And I tried to bring them all together uh, in, an, in an interesting way. Now, a lot of background to your book is what's called the clean Wehrmacht myth. Now, could you kind of briefly explain what that is and how scholars have kind of debated this since the end of the war? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the uh, the clean Wehrmacht myth or the myth of the clean Wehrmacht pertains to uh, the German military in World War II, uh, that is the Wehrmacht. And um, for many, many decades after the war, um, most people in Germany and even also in the US and Britain and other countries um, had this idea that the German army in World War II had been a relatively clean and honorable organization, um, that they hadn't participated in atrocities. Um, they, they weren't Nazi, you know, they kind of kept their distance from the Nazi regime. Um, they weren't responsible for its crimes. And they, they kind of, they didn't look anything like the SS, like the SS were the real bad guys, the regular soldier was the good guy. Um, and early on in like the 1950s, a lot of the histories of the war uh, really kind of propagated this myth. Um, but over time, historians started to, uh, to kind of find all these problems with the myth. Um, and to make a long story short, today we understand the war was not this like decent conventional war fought by you know an honorable army it was actually a war of extermination that was more about destroying um inferior races and uh the number of crimes germans committed was kind of unprecedented in military history about 15 to 20,000 uh soviet civilians were killed during the war um often quite deliberately by the army um, so, uh, so we, we now understand this was more a criminal organization really than a conventional army. Now the book mentions the complex convergence of Nazi ideology and what you call traditional morality. Now, what do you mean by traditional morality in this context? Yeah. So, uh, traditional morality, um, I talk a lot about, and, um, that's the set of ideas that Germans, um, considered to be right and wrong um, before Hitler showed up on the scene. Um, a lot of that was based in Christianity or Judaism, uh, things like the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule, um, you know, the value of human life, uh, justice is important, uh, middle-class ideas about uh, cleanliness or being a good husband or a good family member. Um, and in the military, there's also a longstanding kind of honor code about how the soldier is supposed to behave and, uh, you know, be, be nice to innocent women and children and things like that. Um, so that's traditional morality. Uh, and then Nazi ideology was more about race. Um, Nazi ideology told people they needed to um, kind of stick together as the, the superior German race and then destroy inferior races. And that, so you have these kind of two big influences on how Germans thought about concepts of right and wrong. Now, what was the relationship between Nazi ideology and traditional military values that you just mentioned during the early uh, Nazi years, uh, probably before Operation Barbarossa? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the military had a, a pretty long history with its values. Um, you know, going back centuries about how a soldier was supposed to behave and be honorable. 
Um, and even after the Nazis came to power, you see uh, some of that in like the literature for soldiers telling them what to do. Um, they're supposed to be God-fearing. They're supposed to be, um, you know, good towards non-combatants and treat prisoners well and kind of follow international laws. Uh, and that kind of idea still shows up in the Wehrmacht, but the Nazis bring in a lot of other ideas in the 1930s. Um, so soldiers are suddenly supposed to be, you know, absolutely loyal to Adolf Hitler. Um, this, the Nazis kind of rewrite the handbooks and tell soldiers to be, you know, good Nazis and part of this Nazi racial community, um, that they're supposed to destroy Germany's enemies without mercy. And they uh, institute a bunch of indoctrination programs and propaganda in the army to get soldiers to, uh, to kind of buy into this. So it's, it's, you have a kind of an interesting situation where the traditional values are still talked about and they're still there to some degree, but the Nazi values are coming in and starting to, to slowly transform this army. Now, how did Operation Barbarossa change this uh, relationship? Because you know that it kind of becomes more Nazi influenced over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say uh, Operation Barbarossa, that's the invasion of the Soviet Union, um, really kind of radicalizes the Nazi part of this relationship. Um, so this, this invasion was explicitly ideological. It was, you know, soldiers were told that they were going there to destroy Jewish Bolshevism, which is a made up thing. Um, the idea that the Soviet Union was ruled by Jews uh, who had to be destroyed. Um, they were, a lot of the German generals told soldiers to act without mercy. Um, they were told we're not really going to follow the rules of war. Um, and essentially, they, they set out this framework that we're going to be lords of Eastern Europe and kind of do whatever we want. Um, but at the same time, as you see all of these, you know, very Nazi and very criminal orders being issued, um, I argued that you still see traditional moralities uh, playing a role in the Wehrmacht, um, ideas about honor and, and uh, kind of good behavior. But in many cases, the, the honorable side gets used as a kind of smokescreen to cover up all of the, the atrocities and the Nazi side of the Wehrmacht. Now, during the early stages of the invasion of the Soviet Union, what were kind of the general attitudes of German soldiers towards uh, Soviet civilians. Yeah, so I talk a lot about that uh, relationship in the book. Uh, it's very complicated. Um, it's uh, primarily pretty negative. Uh, so German soldiers committed uh, many atrocities against civilians. So violence was a big part of the relationship, theft, rape, um, sometimes mass executions of civilians were commonplace. Um, There's also, also a lot of racism, so a lot of soldiers who believe, you know, just like Hitler wanted them to, that these people were biologically inferior, you know, Slavs weren't on the same level as Germans, um, and then you have this other group that is um, more kind of looking down culturally on, on the Soviets as like back economically backwards, poor, culturally inferior to the Germans, which is a tradition that goes back a very long way. Um, but at the same time, so that's, you know, the very negative side, um, but I also found a number of soldiers who uh, expressed sympathy for the population um, and curiosity about the population and talk about um, trying to, to have a, a relatively good relationship with people. 
um, and their letters sometimes paint a picture of of this hospitable, friendly relationship, even though the reality was, you know, terror and destruction were really the norm. Um, so the letters kind of cover up a lot of what's going on there. Now, you note that there were some changes in these uh, relationships by 1942 and 43. Could you uh, explain this in more detail? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, relationship between German civilian or sorry, Soviet civilians and German soldiers uh, really gets worse and worse over time. Um, so uh, the Germans, you know, initially some of the Soviets thought perhaps the Germans would be better rulers than Joseph Stalin. Um, they didn't, you know, they didn't really know exactly what to expect. So you see a bit of give and take there, but as the war goes on and German atrocities, you know, keep going on, a lot of people um, realize that you know the Germans are not um, are not our friends. Um, the partisan movement, this resistance movement against the, the uh, occupiers, really takes off, um, and a lot of you know the relationship really uh, goes downhill and uh, it becomes more one of hatred and mistrust uh, than anything else as the war goes on. Now, you mentioned in the book that by 1944, there's a remarkable change in the value system within the Wehrmacht. Can you explain this, uh, particularly in relationship to the relationship between traditional morality and Nazi ideology that we discussed earlier? Yeah, um, so I see a kind of uh, a few things going on here. Um, one is some soldiers who really um, bought into Nazi ideology and made that into kind of the center of their worldview. Um, so they use that to explain, you know, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Um, and there are other soldiers who clung more to traditional values, um, who said, you know, I'm a good I'm a good, honorable person and, and tried to kind of talk in their letters about how honorable they were and sort of the nice things they did, but still found ways to rationalize what they were doing and to, um, to kind of uh, justify this criminal invasion. Um, but one of the kind of change over time um, uh, things that I see in the book is that uh, toward the end of the war, you know, by 1944, so soldiers are writing about feeling like they're losing their humanity, um, like they're becoming numb, like they don't really feel like they know the difference between right and wrong anymore. Um, so you see the war kind of grinding them down along with their sense of morality. Um, and this, this feeds into a kind of victimhood narrative in the Wehrmacht that we are um, we're the victims here. We're not the perpetrators. Um, you know, we're suffering on the Eastern Front. It's, you know, it's freezing and we're, we're losing our limbs out here. Um, and uh, so we can't, we can't possibly be the bad guys. Um, we're, we're the ones that people should be feeling sorry for. Now, you kind of gave a list of some of the atrocities that German soldiers committed on the Eastern Front, but what were some of the kind of rationalizations that were given for committing these crimes like that you mentioned uh, earlier? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so one thing I found in the, in the letters, I didn't think that Germans would talk about atrocities, but they did. Um, and they, you, they found many different ways to justify what they were doing, uh, kind of to themselves, but also to the people reading their letters. Um, one, one kind of 
strain of rationalizations had to do with Nazi ideology. So soldiers who were saying, um, you know, we had to execute that guy because he was a Jew and Jews are a threat, you know, so that's very much in line with um, Nazi ideas about morality. But um, a lot of the rationalizations they gave, um, I call more kind of run of the mill or comp commonplace traditional moral rationalizations that you see in, in lots of other wars or a lot of them frankly reminded me of like the playground in kindergarten when kids are like arguing about who's right and who's wrong. Um, and, you know, one of the things uh, you see is uh, the Soviets are worse. So like we had to execute these prisoners because the Soviets did it first or, you know, we wiped out this village because uh, some of the people were shooting at German soldiers. So it's more, they present it as like an act of justice rather than a crime uh, in some cases. Um, you also have arguments about survival that, you know, we had to steal this food because we're going hungry, um, which is a little bit of, of a stronger argument. But um, in most cases, the Germans were better fed uh, than the civilians they were stealing from. Um, there's also a lot of uh, kind of rhetorical slate of hand, making it sound like crimes weren't really crimes. Like, you know, we didn't steal that chicken. It was like gifted to us uh, kind of thing. Um, using like euphemisms and some tricky language to make it sound like they weren't really committing crimes. They were just kind of like coming into possession of, of all these items which are actually stolen. Um, so there's a lot of kind of linguistic justification in there. Um, and then another justification I'll mention is um, the idea of military necessity, um, which is the concept that you know, we had to burn down the village because it's the only way to stop the, the Red Army from advancing, um, or you know, this is the only way to win the war. Um, so it's kind of an argument about like the ends justify the means. Um, so those are a few of the arguments that I notice in the letters. Now, why would German soldiers write about these uh, atrocities to loved ones back home? Wouldn't that kind of distress people on the home front or make them like rethink like, well, why are we doing this? Why are we attacking the Soviet Union? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And it really surprised me. Um, initially, I set out to write a chapter about atrocities and I was worried that I would have nothing to say because, you know, the soldiers didn't talk about them. But I was surprised to find that they did write about them. In fact, um, over two thirds of the men I studied uh, talked about atrocities in one way or another. And I, I think there are a few possible reasons. I mean, the really Nazi soldiers sometimes wrote about them to kind of celebrate them, um, for example. But um, what I found to be one of the most compelling reasons they wrote about them was to express a kind of guilt, but then also to exonerate themselves at the same time. Um, so a lot of times they're mentioning what they're, you know, what they're doing and how maybe it's kind of questionable, but then they're providing to their, you know, sometimes it's their mom or their girlfriend, some kind of justification or rationalization for what they're doing. Um, so I, I see them as sort of taking the opportunity to, uh, to try to make what they're doing morally comprehensible to their loved ones. Um, and it seems like the people in the homeland kind of took those arguments for granted. Now, was there any official censorship uh, regarding these atrocities in letters? Were soldiers instructed, please don't write about these uh, matters to the people back home because this might you know, demoralize the home front? 
you would think so. And in fact, some historians say there was, uh, but when I was in the archives, I came across uh, the, the rules that the censors followed. Um, so there was a group of censors, they were part of the military bureaucracy who would read letters. Um, but what the censors were um, kind of instructed to do was really to, um, to find out any soldiers who said bad things about Hitler or, or bad things about the regime. Um, and their other main, um, main goal was to stop soldiers from giving away military secrets. Like, uh, you know, we're gonna attack tomorrow in this town at this time. Um, but the censors were not told uh, to stop soldiers from writing about atrocities. Um, and, and I think one reason for that could be uh, because the army as a whole had decided when this war started that they weren't gonna follow the rules of war at all. Um, so it's possible they just didn't, didn't really care if German soldiers wrote about uh, these atrocities because according to Nazi ideology, you know, they weren't really atrocities. These are, you know, good things that are helping the German people. Um, so I found that censorship wasn't really, um, wasn't really stopping soldiers from writing about this sort of thing. Now, you mentioned how the perceived brutalities of the Soviet system contributed to uh, Wehrmacht involvement in atrocities, even as a justification for it, because this is almost like a reaction to, you know, mm -hmm. the brutality of Stalin's regime. Yeah, so that is something that shows up quite a bit in the letters, um, and it's not just letters, but through all sectors of the of the military bureaucracy of the Wehrmacht, you see um, all kinds of accusations against the Soviet regime. Um, and keep in mind, you know, the Soviets were pretty bad. Uh, in this war, they happen to be not as bad as the Germans um, by a long shot, but um, you know, they they had plenty to answer for. Um, so the Germans accused the Soviets of um, uh, of kind of uh, leaving their people to poverty, of ruining the country in various ways. Um, you know, a lot of soldiers talked about being shocked at how horrible conditions were, how poor people were in the Soviet Union when it was supposed to be this like paradise for workers. Um, so there's a lot of talk about the Soviet regime kind of betraying its people and just uh, mismanaging the entire country. Um, there's also a lot of talk about the Red Army and how the Soviet soldiers were um, breaking the rules of war, um, like shooting German soldiers in the back, fighting in like a dishonorable way, um, you know, attacking medics and things like that. Um, so these these ideas about how how horrible the Soviets are uh, will like you, you mentioned, become justifications for why the Germans can go a step farther and you know, execute prisoners uh, and do things of that nature. How does this relate to this complex relationship between Nazi ideology and traditional military uh, values, this notion that the perceived brutalities of the Soviet system serve as uh, justification for atrocities? Yeah, uh, good question. So in the book, I try to kind of tease out the extent to which the Wehrmacht is using Nazi ideology to justify what it's doing versus traditional morality. Um, so many historians emphasize the Nazi ideology part. Um, and there were certainly some soldiers who would explain the crimes of the army 
through ideology. So, you know, there, there are guys who like Heinz Sartorio, who sees a massacre of Jews in one city and um, talks about how he believes this is fully justified. And he's, you know, he's pretty, um, he's a pretty committed Nazi at that point. Um, but on the other hand, um, I saw even more soldiers who tended to fall back on, on these more traditional arguments, like, well, we're not really committing crimes, this is an act of justice, they did it first, um, you know, it's not really our fault, we had to do it because X, Y, and Z. Um, and so I think a lot of soldiers weren't, you know, either weren't quite, um, you know, completely Nazified at this point, um, or maybe they thought their readers wouldn't really accept the Nazi arguments as much. So they tended very often to use these more traditional moral arguments to explain what they were doing. Um, and so I think there you see kind of some of the limits of Nazi ideology that maybe not all the soldiers bought into the Nazi system, but they found other ways to accept and rationalize what they were doing, which I think in some ways is, is even worse. It's like, you don't, you don't need to be a Nazi to figure out a way to, to kind of participate willingly in all of this. Now, perhaps one of the more famous examples of these type of atrocities concern what is called the Commissar Orders. Now, can you explain uh, what this was and how it was carried out? Sure. So. The Commissar Orders were part of a, a group of orders that were issued at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa that historians collectively call the criminal orders. Um, so the criminal orders were a set of orders that um, basically said, we're not gonna follow any international rules in this war. This is an ideological war of extermination. Um, and so they, the order said many different things, but the Commissar Order um, told the German army to execute uh, commissars, so Soviet political officials, as they went into Russia. Um, and there's actually, uh, German units weren't necessarily always sure who the commissars were, um, if that meant like civilian political leaders or um, Soviet officials who were embedded in the Red Army. Um, but in general, the, the Germans executed both. Um, so when they found commissars, they would um, either execute them immediately, and some soldiers talk about this in their letters, or they would hand them over to the SS uh, behind the lines to be executed. So this is one of the, you know, one of the first kind of atrocities that you see on the Eastern Front. And um, it's a very good indication that the Germans you know, had, had decided at the beginning that they weren't going to follow any kind of international norms. Now, you talk about how after 1941, German soldiers kind of evolve in their descriptions of atrocities to the, in their letters to the home front. Uh, can you explain this? Yeah, so in 1941, I found that soldiers tended to write quite a bit about atrocities. They... Um, they were sometimes kind of shocked by them. They spent a lot of time trying to explain them to the home front, but by the second year of the war, they stopped talking about them um, for the most part. And uh, when they do mention them, it's like, it's just part of the routine. Um, so it's, I, I think that atrocities were so common that soldiers just stopped finding them 
you know, interesting or worthy of discussion. Um, it's more like, you know, oh yeah, yesterday we went to the village and got some chickens or something like that. When in 1941, they might've gone into detail about, you know, fighting with civilians and killing civilians and taking their property. Um, so this is, this is part of this kind of numbing um, that soldiers go through where they, you know, they don't feel as responsible for their actions anymore. Um, and it, it helps turn this criminal and terroristic war into um, a kind of routine. It's part of the normalization of atrocities on the Eastern Front. Now, how did Nazi ideology and traditional religion coexist within the Wehrmacht uh, before 1941? Give us a little background. Yeah, so religion is one of the topics I study in the book um, because for many German soldiers, religion was the bedrock of morality um, to begin with. And um, the German army had a very long religious tradition going back all the way to Frederick the Great um, and even before him. Um, the army had chaplains, about 900 chaplains, who would conduct worship services and funerals and lead Bible studies. Um, a lot of the men were Christian. Um, you have to keep in mind, Germany was about 95% Christian, um, at least you know, from surveys at the time. Um, not all of them were, you know, dedicated churchgoers, but um, so you can imagine most men in the Wehrmacht had some sort of connection uh, to religion. And um, so religious traditions continued, um, you know, lots of soldiers read Bibles, they had uh, song books where they could read hymns uh, during worship services. But um, when the Nazis took over in the 1930s, the um, that religious tradition kind of comes under attack. Um, a lot of Nazi officials like um, Joseph Goebbels didn't want the soldiers to be religious. They wanted them to be Nazi. Um, they, you know, they saw this big problem with, with Christian soldiers because they would be too soft or too Jewish um, or something like that. So the Nazis start to undermine Christianity in various ways. Um, they changed the hymn books so the hymns are now more about like, I don't know if they're exactly, you know, singing to Adolf Hitler, but they're, they're kind of nationalistic and they get rid of anything that looks Jewish. Um, the, the role of the chaplaincy is restricted quite a bit. So chaplains can't, can't do their job as effectively. Um, Goebbels starts to cut off the religious literature that is printed for soldiers. And actually by 1941, um, they're completely forbidden from getting any kind of religious writings uh, other than the Bible, like that was about it. Um, so the Nazis are kind of slowly trying to um, take over sort of the moral influence in the Wehrmacht from more traditional religion to Nazi ideology. Now, the two biggest uh, main Christian traditions in Germany are Protestantism and Catholicism. Now, was there any type of differences between how Protestants and Catholic soldiers reacted to this situation? Yeah, so uh, in general, it's hard to generalize just because it's such a big army and there are so many soldiers, but um, of the ones that I studied, um, and about two-thirds, uh, by the way, of Germans were uh, Protestant, and about one-third of Germans were Catholic. Um, I tended to find that the, the Protestant soldiers were a little more on board with uh, following Hitler and a kind of accepting Nazi rule. 
Um, and I think that partly that is because they were in the majority and Protestantism had kind of become intertwined with German nationalism over the years. So if you were a Protestant, you kind of did what the what the state told you because the state embodies Germany and you're a good German. Um, so in general, the Protestants tended to be a little less critical of the regime and uh, more accepting of its ideology, which I find sad because I'm a Protestant, um, but you know, that's kind of what I found in the letters. Uh, the Catholic soldiers, so Catholics were a minority in Germany um, and they had kind of a, a tense history with the government. There were times in German history when there was really a lot of conflict between the Catholics and the state. And so the Catholics tended to be um, a little more critical of the regime, um, a little more questioning. Um, they te also tended to be more frequent churchgoers and more interested in theology. A lot of the Protestants were more like cultural Christians, like they, you know, eh, maybe they went to church like once a year or something like that. Um, a lot of the Catholics tended to be a little more dedicated. Um, and so I see um, the Catholic soldiers being a little more concerned about um, what the Nazis were doing in the army than the Protestants, um, although there, there were certainly exceptions. Um, so yeah, you, you do see some differences between them. Now you mentioned the importance of uh, this concept of fighting a holy war against uh, the communist regime, which was officially atheist, as a very important motivating factor for uh, German soldiers, especially those who were more religious. Can you explain how this concept kind of emerged in the Wehrmacht's mentality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was part of the kind of larger attempt by soldiers to justify what they were doing, to try to um, believe that they were fighting for a righteous cause. And uh, religion became a big part of this. Um, so as you mentioned, the Soviet Union was an officially atheist country. Um, they also persecuted Christians and shut down churches and sent priests to Siberia. Um, so, you know, they certainly were not uh, any friends of religion. And when the German army ruled in, um, there are a lot of decla declarations of crusade. Um, so like the guy who was in charge of the Catholic chaplains declared that we're fighting a crusade against the godless communists. Um, even Joseph Goebbels, like some of the top Nazi leaders would use the word crusade. Um, I don't think they meant it in a religious way, but they, they would do that from time to time. Um, and a lot of the soldiers uh, started getting interested in, in the question of religion and the Soviet Union. And they would go into churches and try to figure out, like, you know, is anyone in the Soviet Union still Christian? Or, you know, are they all, all godless at this point? Um, and uh, they started to really develop, uh, or some of the Christian soldiers started to develop this idea that we are good Christian warriors battling against this atheist regime. Uh, therefore, what we're doing is justified, and perhaps we're even going to bring religion back to the Soviet Union. So this is kind of like a, a Christian mission to go and, and save the Soviet Union, um, which, you know, it wasn't. Um, it was actually an ideological war to destroy the Soviet Union. But um, this is another way that soldiers kind of found, found a way to justify what they were doing. 
Now, you mentioned about German soldiers being curious about whether or not there were still Christians in the Soviet Union. Now, how did religion have an effect on some of the early encounters between German soldiers and Soviet civilians? You do talk a lot about this in the book. Yeah, so this was something that surprised me quite a bit. Um, but what, what German soldiers found pretty quickly is that, um, you know, they, they expected everyone would be atheist and, you know, kind of anti-Christian, but they started to recognize that many of the Soviet, really the majority of Soviet civilians were actually uh, pretty dedicated Christians, even though they'd been persecuted for a long time. Um, so they talk about people bringing their icons out of the basement, um, you know, or, or there's a guy who this old man had like saved the church bell from the church tower somehow and like brought it out of his hut when the Germans came. Um, I don't know how he did that. Uh, but so soldiers start to recognize like, oh, wait a second, um, religion isn't gone in the Soviet Union. And um, one of the most fascinating events um, that I, I write about in the book is the opening of churches by the Wehrmacht. Um, so early in the campaign, uh, German chaplains and soldiers got together and when they went into a town for the first time, they would go to the churches. And a lot of times the Soviets had uh, converted the churches into theaters or museums or factories or sometimes just kind of let them decay. Um, so soldiers would go in there, clean them out, and then hold worship services for the first time in like 20 years. Um, and so in some of those worship services, civilians would actually take part. Um, and you had cases where like thousands of civilians would come from miles around to worship with the German army in, in these old churches, um, which is absolutely extraordinary. Um, and, you know, didn't... Um, not something I expected at all. Um, so you see early on a kind of um, Christian universalism, this idea that like we're all Christian, we're all Christians together kind of creeping into the Wehrmacht um, and helping to justify what they're doing. But uh, the Nazis were not happy about this. Um, and Hitler uh, specifically, he learned about these worship services and he issued an order immediately that you can't do this. Um, you know, these people are subhumans, you can't be going to church with them. Um, and after that point, uh, the relationship between uh, civilians and soldiers was more restricted when it came to religion. Um, although there are some soldiers that I read about who, um, who still would go to orthodox worship services sometimes and talked about religion with Russian civilians. Um, so there's definitely still a lot of curiosity. Um, and overall, I, I argue in the book that all of this um, contributed to this idea that the Germans were fighting for a righteous cause uh, against this, you know, this godless enemy. Now, you talk about how as the war wore on, this had an effect on the type of religious convictions uh, among Wehrmacht soldiers, especially as expressed in their letters back home. Can you explain how this occurred? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I tried to figure out is... Um, did soldiers become more religious during the war or did they become less religious? Um, I mean, there's the saying, um, there are no atheists in the trenches, right? Like a lot of people kind of expect that all soldiers kind of turned religious if they weren't already. Um, and in the Wehrmacht, it, it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, 
So there are soldiers who talk about, um, who, who kind of initially start out as pretty religious and then kind of drop that over time. Uh, maybe, you know, they just kind of become atheists or just less interested in religion. Um, there's even one guy who's a pastor um, in peacetime, and he talks about, like, by the middle of the war, he kind of realizes that he doesn't really read the Bible anymore, um, but he, he kind of goes back and, and does that. Um, but I, I did detect, especially if you read the reports of German chaplains, um, they talk about really um, big worship service attendance. So whenever they hold worship, you know, soldiers come from all around, um, that most of them are taking communion, which is a, you know, a sign they might be more dedicated Christians. And a lot of the soldiers um, tended to either become more religious, I think, or at least um, they, you know, kind of held on to religious ideas that they had before. Um, so in general, it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like I hesitate to really say, you know, yes, they absolutely became more religious, but um, it seems like the army was trending in that direction, at least from what I've, what I've read. Now you talk about, we already discussed uh, earlier in the uh, interview about this growing tension between the Nazi ideology and traditional religion. And you kind of mentioned in the book that from 1943 onwards, this tension kind of intensifies. Can you explain uh, this process? Yeah, so this is part of the larger Nazi process of trying to transform the Wehrmacht from more of a traditional organization to a fully Nazi organization, um, partly by kind of getting rid of Christian influence. So um, by this stage in the war, uh, there were a bunch of regulations restricting religious practice in various ways. Uh, soldiers weren't allowed to worship in Soviet churches. Um, and, and keep in mind, there weren't many buildings that were really big enough in the Soviet Union to worship in. So that, that was actually a pretty big problem in the winter. Um, they also uh, created a, a law called the Uriah Law or the Uriah Rule um, that said if a chaplain is killed, uh, he will not be replaced. So the number of chaplains goes from 900 and just keeps dropping over the war. And there just weren't enough chaplains to hold worship services. Um, like I mentioned before, religious literature was completely forbidden in the Wehrmacht um, as well. Uh, the Nazis also um, introduced this, um, this position called the National Socialist Leadership Officer who was embedded in German units and was supposed to kind of indoctrinate the troops and teach them you know, about Nazism. And I see him as almost like a replacement for the chaplain. Like you're, you're supposed to get your, your spiritual ideas from this guy, you know, not, not the traditional chaplain. Um, so you definitely see um, a, you know, a lot of tension in the army between, um, you know, between Christianity and Nazism at this point. And a lot of soldiers who were um, not happy about this. I mean, some of them uh, were pretty upset at what the Nazis were doing to religion, um, both in Germany, back home, and in the army itself. Like soldiers complaining that they couldn't, they couldn't find a worship service to go to. Or you know, there's one guy who talks about a Christmas, a Christmas Eve service where Nazi officers. Um, were debating if they should let the soldiers sing Silent Night because it might be too Christian. 
Um, so you see some soldiers who are um, who are critical of this, but um, for the most part, soldiers still tended to believe that, in comparison to the Soviets, they they were the good Christian army, um, and you know they were still fighting on the right side, uh, even though the Nazis were kind of undermining all of this. Now, related to this concept of the Holy War that we've been discussing, there was also this concept that the Wehrmacht was invading the Soviet Union in order to liberate the people that are being oppressed by the Soviet, by the Soviet regime. Now, what impact did this have on German soldiers during the early stages of Operation Barbarossa? Yeah, this is another one of those um, disturbing rationalizations uh, that the soldiers make. Um, and this idea that the Germans were there to liberate, um, you know, the poor peoples of the Soviet Union from Joseph Stalin, and we're going to make life better. This is like a humanitarian mission to help people. Um, and it, it does remind me a bit of uh, what Vladimir Putin is doing right now in Ukraine, saying that his army are peacekeepers who are like bringing order or something like that. Um, so this isn't unique in history. Uh, but early on in the war, um, when the German army moved in, there were a lot of civilians, uh, Soviet civilians, who were actually uh, relatively welcoming toward the Wehrmacht, um, throwing flowers at German tanks and offering soldiers food and putting up welcome signs. And, and the reason for that is because uh, Stalin had been so horrible. Um, I mean, millions of people had died in Ukraine and the famines. Um, you know, especially in the countryside, uh, there, there are a lot of people who did not like the Soviet regime, and they were hoping that maybe there's a chance the Germans would be better. Um, so you had this kind of initial welcome, and German soldiers write a lot in their letters about, you know, this, the initial reaction of the people, and, and this sense that, okay, we're coming in as liberators. So they, they definitely convey this idea in their letters um, quite a bit. They talk about um, their relationship with the population and um, little gestures like handing out candy to children or um, like there's one soldier who helps an old lady get firewood in the winter to survive the winter, um, other people who are handing out food. Um, and in general, um, despite the fact that again, this is a terroristic occupation where millions and millions of, of civilians are being killed, German soldiers tended to write about their relationship as more of a like a friendly or benign occupation. Like we're here, we're bringing justice and order back to the Soviet Union. You know, hey, I gave this guy, you know, a potato yesterday. Therefore, you can tell that I'm a, you know, I'm a good occupier. I'm not a, I'm not a monster. Um, so this idea of liberation becomes another way that soldiers are uh, trying to transform this, this criminal war into a kind of, you know, nice humanitarian project that they're a part of, uh, which is, you know, pretty, kind of makes her head spin, but um, that is what they uh, seem to have managed to accomplish. Now, did German soldiers ever make any distinction between Russian and non-Russian ethnicities in this regard? Because I know a lot of the non-Russian ethnicities tended to be more welcoming at first mm -hmm. for the Germans. Um, so in a very general sense, um, the German soldiers weren't too sophisticated um, to, to really know 
what the different ethnicities were. So the Soviet Union had many, many different ethnicities, many different languages. Uh, and a lot of soldiers just said Russian, like no matter where they were, no matter what they were doing, it's just Russian, Russian, Russian. Um, however, um, in the Ukraine, I do find a more of a distinction where soldiers will talk about Ukrainians. Um, and there were, I was actually struck that there were a couple of soldiers who specifically talked about how they wanted to free Ukraine um, and how the Ukrainians wanted to be free of, of the Soviet Union, uh, which, you know, certainly kind of uh, impacts what's going on today a little bit. Um, you know, I would, I would certainly say Ukrainians have always considered themselves to be uh, separate uh, from Russia in that sense. Um, so you see um, ideas about Ukrainian liberation uh, coming through. Um, another ethnic group that really is mentioned the most are ethnic Germans. Um, so a lot of you know listeners may not know this, but there were actually a few hundred thousand ethnic Germans living in the Soviet Union. Um, some of them had be had been there for generations, and um, so when the German army rules in, part of the liberation, you know, discussion is about we're freeing these you know these poor uh, ethnic Germans from Soviets, um, and so when they go into German villages, the Soviets are particular, or the soldiers are particularly excited about freeing people and you know, speaking German. And a lot of times they talk about how, you know, when they meet a German family in the Soviet Union, they're cleaner and they're not, you know, they're like more civilized than the other people they meet, um, which also kind of figures into this, the racial distinctions uh, that Germans made. Now, how did this attitude towards, uh you know, liberating the Soviet people change as uh, the war wore on among German soldiers. So uh, it was it was difficult to maintain this fiction of liberation uh, because the German occupation was just so terrible. Um, the crimes were so commonplace that. Um, you know, after that initial hope that perhaps the Germans will be better than, you know, than the Soviets, you get into a much, um, you know, a much more antagonistic relationship where Soviet civilians are taking up arms to resist the, the invaders. Um, you know, the soldiers are very suspicious of every civilian they meet, you know, it could be a spy, this person could be a resistor. And the relationship just kind of spirals downward um, over the course of the war. Um, but uh, I guess one thing I, I kind of argue in the book is despite that, in their letters, the soldiers still kind of try to maintain this idea that, you know, okay, maybe we're not really liberating them exactly, you know, maybe that idea kind of fades from the letters, but this is still a relatively nice occupation. Like we, you know, we're, we're not making them do slave labor. They're kind of doing it because they're they want to do it and they want to help us. Um, or you know, we're we're giving out food to people, so this couldn't possibly be um, you know a, a criminal action that we're undertaking. Um, so so the you know the main idea of liberation definitely kind of loses its luster, but you still have this general rationalization that we are. Um, you know, we're relatively nice occupiers. In fact, maybe we're even too nice. Um, some soldiers even go that far. Well, we're nearing the end of our uh, interview here. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, perhaps you could explain, like, what has been the legacy 
of uh, the clean Wehrmacht myth that we discussed at the beginning. What has been like the evolution and legacy of this in uh, Germany, both in the immediate post-war era, but even continuing to today? Yeah, um, so I'd say the legacy of the myth um, is, is uh, quite negative um, for German memory. Um, after the war, it was used to cover up a lot of the crimes that the army had committed. So there are a lot of, a lot of men who served in the Wehrmacht who, um, who were never prosecuted for war crimes and kind of got away with, some of them became mayors, were officers in the new army. Um, it became part of this general um, kind of attempt to ignore or sweep under the rug the Nazi past and say, you know, uh, we're just not going to talk about that. We're not going to think about that. Um, you know, everyone from that time period kind of gets a free pass. Um, so it, it had a very negative impact on German memory, I'd say, for uh, really up until about the 1990s. Um, and it's in the 1990s, um, there's a famous museum exhibition about the crimes of the Wehrmacht um, that traveled around Germany. And it showed photographs of and writings of German soldiers of, you know, what the war was actually like, what the army was actually doing and all these crimes it committed. And um, there were Germans who were like going to this exhibition and seeing pictures of their grandpa, like executing civilians on the Eastern Front. Um, and so this really um, had a big impact along with, um, you know, what historians were writing about um, to kind of change the tide against the Wehrmacht myth and um, help people to see the reality of what the Wehrmacht was like. Um, and then in my book, I, one of the things I argue is that um, the myth was more powerful and more deeply entrenched than people have really um, have really uh, noticed because um, I argued that it began with the soldiers themselves during the war through the letters that they wrote uh, where they created this narrative about how they were honorable men fighting for a righteous cause and that that is the true origin of the myth um, and so many you know Germans accepted the myth um, before the war even ended, that it was unlikely they were going to change their minds after 1945. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I'd say about, about the myth. Well, we always like to conclude our interviews by asking the author, what are they working on now? Uh, sounds good. Uh, so I have a, a couple of, ch of uh, chapters in other people's books uh, that I've been working on. Um, one is about uh, morality and uh, kind of traditional morality and Nazi ideology, so not a, not a surprise. Uh, and another one is about the um, the use of morality as a kind of weapon by the Wehrmacht for strategic uh, benefit during World War II. Um, so those are two things that are kind of in the pipeline right now. Um, and in the future, I haven't completely decided um, but I, I think I want to write more about uh, morality in the Third Reich in general, so not just within the Wehrmacht, um, but looking at to what extent did the average civilian um, kind of do some of these things that I see German soldiers do of using more traditional moral values or, or more traditional moral arguments to justify um, participating in, in the Nazi regime in some way. 
Um, so that's, that's at least one idea of uh, what could be the next project. Well, this has been a very uh, enriching uh, conversation, especially in light of uh, current events uh, ongoing as of now. And David A. Harrisville, uh, Harrisville uh, pardon me, uh, thank you for uh, joining us on the New Books Network. Right. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. And perhaps if you finish any books in the future, uh, we'll have you back on. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Steven Sakevich. Until next time.